This is FP Story. Welcome back to the Six Feet Above podcast. I say that every week I'm so excited and every week is special, but this week I really, 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 really mean it. I am sitting across from a uh, now in real life friend, FP Abderhalden. Did I say that right? Yes, you got it. FP is Frances Page and she is one of these people that comes into your life and you don't know why at first. And then as your relationship grows, you're like, Thank you, God. Do you feel the same way? Yes. I feel very <laughs> kismet with you. Very, um, very. So FP goes by, well, Francis Page goes by FP. So this is so random the way the world works. New Skin brought us together, the affiliate marketing company we're both part of, but we have so much more in common. And she's like, listen, I have followed your story. I've listened to your podcasts for you know the past however many months, years, whatever. And we started chatting and it's, it's crazy the way that my guests are coming about. Most of them are listeners lately. And your story, as you opened up to me, first of all, is very, um, it's very deep. It's very rooted. You've been through a lot of shit, but like I always say, everyone has a story. Mm -hmm. Everyone's been through something, right? No one gets out of this life without going through some hardships. And it's really what you do with it that matters. And it's safe to say you're still very much dealing with some old trauma. Yeah, I think that's fair. Just starting to kind of piece it together and and figure out how I move from there. And kind of how you always say, like, take your story and make that your motivation. Yeah, That's kind of like I'm at that turning point right now. Yeah. But I feel like you had subconsciously done it a long time ago with the work that you do in the world. So let's start with who you are now, um, what you're doing professionally, and then we'll kind of work backwards. Sure. That works for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a criminologist by training. I have a PhD in criminal justice and I do all of my work. Originally it started being like, I wanted to work with emotionality and people Uh incarcerated. I knew I wanted to do something with the correctional population But then that shifted and I started to realize there's a lot of self-interest thoughts and behaviors. And so I wanted to work with that and kind of figure out ways to reduce that from happening, especially in our jail system, which is shorter term, less serious offenders, people that are, you know, first time or one time or two time offenders that are things like drugs or traffic violations, things like that. Not 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 our crazy serious um, offenders. Why were you drawn to the criminal system? Do you know? Yeah. So this goes into probably a bit of the trauma story that we'll get into. But I had a interaction with the justice system Mm -hmm. as a victim. Mm. And it was a horrible interaction. (laughs) Uh, It was not good. I was was victim blamed and shamed left, right, and center. Um, But eventually I got switched over to some great detectives who I still work with that I love. But Because of that, there was something that in me was like, I don't want other people to go through this. I want other people to have a voice and a support and and kind of be able to get through something without having the additional trauma of being told that like it's your fault or something Mm. like that. So that's really what started it. Then I started taking criminal justice classes fell in love with some of my professors, not like in love, but like loved <laughs> my professors. Um, like they made an impact on your life. They made a huge impact yeah. on my life. Where'd and you it go was, to college, FP? So I went to college. I went to, when I, I dropped out of college after my trauma experience. Yeah. And then I went back to school at East Mississippi Community College okay. for a year. And then I transferred into University of West Florida, which is in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. 
And I did my undergrad and my master's there. And then I went to University of Central Florida for my PhD. For your doctorate? Yep. Wow. But you're originally from Chicago, you said, right? Yeah. Originally from right outside Chicago, Northwest suburbs. Yeah. So as you got into this, you know, um, criminal studies, criminal system studies, I Mm -hmm. guess, is that what you would call it? Yeah. And really trying to figure out like kind of the, the downfalls of the criminal system and what's going on. It inspired you to want to help. And I'm assuming like you do a lot of work with female correctional facilities, correct? I do a lot with females and males. You do, okay. Um, a lot, and a lot of the jails are mixed. Okay. So are they? Yeah, a lot of our jail system is mixed. Prison system is usually completely separate, like a whole facility male, whole facility prison. Uh, jails, though, there tends to be units okay. that are male and female. Okay, so we're talking like again, stupid American over here. No, it's jails okay. is on a smaller level, less you know serious crimes. Prison is like hardcore stuff, right? Yeah. So the differentiation between prison and jail, which you're not a dumb American, they get this wrong. I'm like, anytime I'm watching TV, <laughs> my dad's a like, lawyer. He'd be so yeah. disappointed. <laughs> no, anytime I'm watching TV, they're like, oh, they were released after 12 years in jail. I'm like, no, you're wrong. That was prison. Um, so prison is short term confinement, usually classified to 14 months or less can be pre or post sentencing and okay. conviction. Okay. But if it's post conviction, it's usually a small, uh, like a lower level crime because we don't have people that commit serious crimes and only receive 14 month sentences right. usually. Right. right. Um, prison is always post conviction and sentencing and it's longer term, usually more serious Got offenders. It. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's, I mean, I feel like you could do, you should have a podcast about all this stuff, <laughs> honestly. Like, we don't know. I don't know any of this stuff. I just feel like no one actually would want to listen to it, but I well, there's maybe. a market for everybody. Yeah, you know? there is. That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay, so you were born and raised in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, your family life because yeah. it sounds like a lot of besides the trauma and the event that we're going to get to, it sounds like some of the other stuff in your life relates back to how you grew up. And I do think most adults, a lot of the stuff that they're ready to deal with head on or they're not ready to deal with at all mm-hmm. stems from the things that we go through in our childhood, in our very young, young years. And unless we are taught, right, unless a child is taught how to read and write, unless a child is taught how to deal with their emotions, they don't. You know, you have to have practice at these things. Mm-hmm. And in talking to you briefly about your story, it sounds like you did not have a lot of practice dealing with the emotional onset of, of just being alive, if that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think there was a lot in my family of acting like we were emotionally Mm -hmm. open and available. There's a lot of, I love you's, but there wasn't a lot of substance and there wasn't a lot of getting into the deeper kind of nitty gritty of being vulnerable in sharing how you were feeling in a safe way. It was, it was a lot of like, sweep it under the rug, let's Mm. move on. And that's the safest way to deal with things, which then as a child turns into sweep it under the rug. I'm better off if I don't have emotions because then I'm already at the under the rug moment as opposed to having to do all the before stuff that doesn't feel safe. So you'd come home to your parents or your Mm -hmm. your parents were married growing up? Yep. And my parents are still married. Yeah. And you have two siblings? Two siblings. I'm the middle child. Okay. Sisters, right? (laughs) Both sisters. Yeah. So, you know, like just kind of give us a little bit of a, um, some, you know, like an example, like you come home and you're upset, something happens at school and it's basically like your parents telling you like, 
oh, you're fine sort of thing. Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, not going into like, how can we fix things or how can we help you or how can we be there for you? Or are you okay? Even to this day, Mm. my parents, I mean, I was just telling my older sister this other day, parents haven't called me yet this year. Like I've spoken to them because this year, this year. I called them and we text frequently, like just Wordle stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. But there's not that kind of deeper connection of like, how are you? How are you doing? What's going on? Like mm. that type of thing. It's just not there. The, the, the capacity for it, I think, isn't there. And so it was a lot of coming home from school and not talking about how I was feeling, not mentioning what happened at school. I went through a lot of bullying in school. Yeah, and yeah. I just wouldn't talk about it. It was easier to just you know, retreat back to my room and not be seen. Right. As opposed to possibly be seen and have things explode. Because right. that's what would happen. My house, my home life was very chaotic in mm. a lot of ways. Mm. And it sounds like you and your older sister were, um, what's the word you use? Not really like ignored, nothing, um, nothing traumatic that came from your parents, but just kind of like not seen. Yeah, we were very much left. And and I don't want to give the perception that my home life was bad necessarily. Yeah. It just was my parents did the best they could with what they were dealt, Absolutely. I think. And they did break a lot of cycles that exist in my family, like alcoholism and things like that. My parents okay. don't drink. They broke a lot of cycles like Got that. It. But they weren't able, unfortunately, and this isn't necessarily their fault. They weren't right. equipped with the tools to do this. They weren't able to break the cycles of, I mean, I think I would just call it like emotional neglect. I think yeah. that's a fair term. Yeah. And I think my sister would agree with me, my older sister. And I've told my parents I feel that way. And sure. They see things maybe a little bit differently, but they can understand where I'm coming from and right. how they didn't show up in ways that were needed. They showed mm-hmm. up in like sporting events. They would come to our sporting events, but they didn't show up in ways that maybe were a little bit more impactful. So like um, when you were in public, right? Like mm-hmm. they were there because that's, you have to be seen, but we very much had like the picture perfect image on God, the outside. God, yes. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was actually, I was just thinking of Carly, um, Carly Durst. We were talking about this. You're reality, your normal is your normal, right? Mm-hmm. Growing up, it's like, this is how everybody is. This is how all parents are. And then at some stage in your life, you get to a place where you're like, oh, wow, there are parents that like do X, Y, and Z or don't or whatever. And you realize not that you're abnormal, but just that things could be different. And then you have this like, this like deep, you know, missing connection in your heart that yes. can very much for lack of a better word, like mind fuck you, because it's like, wait, I wasn't, I wasn't given that, or I didn't have this or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So kind of at what age or what stage of your life did you feel like you started to, um, have this sort of sense of like, this isn't normal. I want more. I need more. I crave for more Mm -hmm. from a parental figure. So I think I've had that yearning. That's a great question. Yearning. That's the word I'm looking for. (laughs) I've had that yearning for a long time. I would say probably most of my life I've had that yearning for something more, but didn't feel like I deserved it. It was Mm. out there or even know that it was available because like you said, my reality was that my family was super normal. My reality wasn't that my family had all these issues and things going on. Right, right, right. But then I would say in the last like four years, I've done a lot of deep digging, trying to process my own trauma 
I think as you work with people who have trauma and who you're trying to help who have mental health crises, you start to realize you also should probably work on yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's why I went back to therapy yeah, two yeah, months I'm ago. Like, oh my God, I guess I I'm should like, do that. Oh, there's some things that are still there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so in doing that and unpacking all of that, I think I've kind of looked back and I'm like, my parents used to like lock us in our bedrooms at night. And like, that's not normal to yeah. not have like be able to leave your room. Um, like little things like that, that yeah. I like always thought other people had, but like they didn't. Like I used to get weighed all the time. And I think that's what? why I struggle with like my weight. Like yeah. physically put on a scale? Yeah, like weekly. Like, <gasps> yeah. So I think there's like a lot of things that I thought growing up, I was like, everyone's parents do this. <laughs> no, no, no. Turns Just out the dad's no. cheerleaders yeah. have to be weighed. Yeah, it turns out no. <laughs> Um, so I think there was a lot of that and, and I'm starting, I mean, I don't want to go too much. And I told you this yeah, is my, yeah, yeah. my yeah, little sister, course. but like there were a lot of moments in my life where it was, if you aren't quiet, the police are going to be called and mm. the police were called on us a couple of times for outbursts and things like that. And so like my whole sense of the world became being quiet, not being seen, not causing a scene, being sure that mm. like I was safe within myself. And so it's really only been the last like four or five years that I've started to say like, wow, yeah, I, I almost feel emotionally stunted in being able to feel my emotions yeah. because I've been closing them off for yeah. so long. Yeah, which it just goes to show like you can try to suppress things for years and years and years and years, but it's still going to be there. It's still going to come up at some point. And you can speak to this. Um, you know, one of my my best friends slash ex-boyfriend um, his dad killed himself at like 60 some years old and he hung himself and he just, I think men have a harder time because they're notoriously taught to man up. Don't be a pussy. Don't be a whatever. So mm -hmm. they're taught just not, don't deal with your emotions, but their emotions are very much real. I think if not more real than some females, Absolutely. um, and they're at the surface. And if you never deal with that and you never, um, you know, have the ability, the capability to cope with it. You don't know what to do with it. So therefore you just kind of like give up in life and you just let it go. And that's unfortunately what happens with a lot of men. We're fixing her mic, put it on the inside, the inside, tighten on the inside. Yep. This one. Yep. Right there. There you go. Um, so I think for, you know, what your, it sounds like your purpose in life is now obviously to help other people, mm -hmm. but very much at the same time deal with what's going on with you. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's all like kind of the duality of it is interesting because it's definitely, it started as like, let me help other people. And I love helping other people. It's like really a passion of mine. And definitely what I think I was meant to be on this earth for is to help others. But then in doing that, it's like, you can only help others in as healthy as you are yourself. Right, right. Okay. Sorry. We are back. We are back. We are back. So, all right. So where did you go after, um, high school? Like your parents obviously had a lot of stuff going on with your younger sister, you said, and you decided to go off and go to college mm -hmm. and be like, you know what? I'm going to move on with my life. Right. Yeah. Kind of making that decision. Cause I always say you can go one of two ways. You can either play the victim and be like, poor me and go down this path of, you know, whatever. Or you're like, I am going to actually go to school. I want to educate myself. I want to become something. Um, so kind of where did you make that decision mm -hmm. and why? So that's interesting. This is a funny, funny-ish story. I Tell mean, us. it's kind of funny. <laughs> um, so 
I always kind of knew I was going to go to college because it's what was expected. Mm. I'm now a third generation academic. My dad is a professor. Okay. Education. My my grandparents were um, superintendents of schools, like administration level type stuff. So education has been very much a huge, heavy part okay. of our lives. Yeah. But it's interesting because growing up, I was of the three siblings, always the like sporty athletic one. Mm. Not that either of my sisters can't be like, don't not right, take it that right. way, but like my older sister did like speech team and she's very intellectual. She went on a full ride to an, an Ivy-esque school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my little sister is also extremely intelligent. And I was never like the books one. Mm. And so my parents didn't spend a lot of time focusing on getting me to college. Right. It was more like, yeah, you're going to go, but like, we'll pick out a school for you. We'll pick out a degree for you. Like, just go, like, try and be successful. Yeah, wow. Whereas I kind of wanted, I wanted to go to the school called Warren Wilson College. It's Where's in that? North Carolina. Okay. It's a super, like, hippy dippy type yeah. school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you like, t- it's this, like three pound approach where you like take classes, you work, and you do service. Okay. Um, and you live in like these cabin dorms. I don't know. They smoke a lot of pot there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Um, so I really wanted to go to Warren Wilson. My parents did not want me to go to Warren Wilson. They wanted me to go to Stevens Point, Wisconsin Stevens okay, Point. Okay, okay. And they only paid for me to apply to one school, um, mm. even though both my sisters, on a side note, applied to like six, but it's fine. It's fine. It's um, a middle child Middle syndrome, child. Right? I also like never took the standardized tests outside of like the time I was in school. Right. So I didn't do very well on those. I was much more like artsy. If I had had my choice, I would have done like a gap year yeah, and taken yeah. some time to explore, travel, and, and travel, figure out make what money, you want to do. whatever. Yeah. yeah, who knows what they want to do at eighteen? Are you kidding I had me? No idea. Not just thirty or whatever. Yeah. So, and you were, and you said you were a swimmer, right? I was a swimmer and water polo player, um, and I actually quit the water polo team my senior year, <laughs> and so that was a whole thing. But <laughs> I wish I had kept going in college, even yeah. if I wouldn't have been. I wasn't good enough to be like you know a, a D one or D1, anything. Yeah, but yeah. I think I could have swam at a smaller school, yeah. probably. Yeah. Um, but so quit swimming, applied to Stevens Point, got in, was going to be a park ranger. That was like literally what my degree was in. Really? Law, law enforcement, natural resource law enforcement, I think is the okay. actual degree. Uh, natural resource management. Well, it's basically to be a park ranger. Yeah. So it's a yeah. law enforcement degree. Okay. Um, <laughs> I really like what park like rangers Smokey wear. The bear, yeah, right? like their uniforms are really cute, but it's just not for me. <laughs> so went to school for that. This is a crucial kind of part to the future story. The week before the school year started, my freshman year, I did a backpacking trip around Lake Superior with a group of 10 students and two like faculty advisors or whatever. Amazing trip, backpacked like 170 miles of this trail, absolutely beautiful. Met a really good friend of mine named Adam on Mm -hmm, this trip. mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of how I got introduced to Stevens Point. He and going into actually living there, the only people I knew at Stevens Point were these people from this backpacking Hmm. trip. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Kind of crazy. But um, you went to the college that your parents wanted you to go went to. Went to the college they wanted me to, majored in the thing that they wanted me to, mm. did horrible the first <laughs> semester. I barely attended classes. I could not memorize flora and fauna to save my life. <laughs> I mean. Like, maybe this is the wrong path. This is not the path, yeah. right? Yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. ended the semester with like a 1.7 GPA. Oh, my God. I was God. on academic probation. It was not good. But I couldn't tell my parents any of that because right. – the fear of like disappointment or right. um, proving them right that right. I was worthless. Not, yeah, 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 yeah. Was too much. Yeah. So I very much like 
didn't tell them anything and just got in a really bad, dark place, Mm. um, really struggling without having any idea, like how to reach out or figure anything out. So went a whole semester, um, went home for winter break, full, like meltdown basically at home. And then like privately, like not in front of them, right? No, like privately. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was totally privately. It was just like, I was doing a lot of self-destructive behaviors and, and like, you know, going out and sneaking out and and drinking. And I mean, nothing, I mean, this is what college kids kind of do anyway. But But for me, someone who grew up, yeah. And someone who grew up in a household where that was very much not acceptable Mm. and very much like there was no alcohol in my house. I did not drink in high school, like nothing like that. It felt very rebellious to Mm. me and like very bad coping. Um, But then went back to school and that's when everything kind of went down. So this, I just want to do like, like give a trigger warning, yeah, right? Um, absolutely. we're going to get into some heavier stuff, but I think it's important that this stuff is shared mm-hmm. and because it happens all the time and people don't talk about it all and the time. you have, you have one life, whether that's 20 years, 80 years, a hundred years, right? And unfortunately, bad things happen to all of us mm-hmm. and most of the time, it's not our fault, mm-hmm. but it becomes our, and I say this, and we had this long conversation via text, via voice notes, back and forth. Yeah. One day. Unfortunately, it becomes our responsibility, mm-hmm. right? So you can either do good with it. You can talk about it with a therapist, talk about it privately and really get yourself to a healthy place so that you can move on, um, in the world and live the best life you possibly can when these traumatic you know, things happen to us or you stay in that place and you, it's the reason that your life sucks. It's the reason that you don't have a good job. It's the reason you don't have a relationship. It becomes an excuse. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand those people. Like I totally get it. I was there for many, 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 many years. Um, that's the victim mentality. Not to say that you were not a victim. I was not, we were all victims in what we went through. Right. So you have been so open and I think this episode, I know this episode will help a lot of people who are struggling internally because that's one reason I started this podcast is because there are people that are not ready to talk about it. They're, they're ashamed and they're embarrassed and that is 100% understandable, but to have someone else talk about things and be like, oh, wow, I can relate to that makes them feel like they're not such an outcast. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you the floor and you can explain as much as you'd like to what happened to you. No, for sure. Before I jump into my story there, I do want to say, and I know Meg and I have talked about this a lot, and I, for the listener, um, mean this from the bottom of my heart. This podcast and listening to this actually changed my life and changed my perspective on the responsibility component here. And it's not saying that you're in the wrong or that you should be at fault for something, but it's taking what happened to you and using it as motivation and using that as power responsibly to move forward in your life and to grow from it and use those experiences to be a better person. And I know like for me, part of attached to the story I'm about to tell is a lot of like weight issues Mm -hmm. and weight gain right after. Mm -hmm. And in the last few weeks, just like kind of having that aha moment has changed how I'm approaching things. And I just, you never know when those little kind of seeds will plant. Um, So it's really cool. You're taking responsibility. Taking responsibility. Even if it's X 
amount of years later. Yeah, it 14 years later. And I'm right? just, yeah. If you're going to live for another 60 years, who cares when you do it? Just who do cares? it at some point. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So to go into my story a bit, and I know uh, Meg said a trigger warning, but I'll just reiterate yeah. it as the suicidologist that I am. <laughs> um, so when I went back to school my second semester, I was, it was on February 13th in 2008. I was followed back to my dorm room. I lived in a single dorm room. Um, I didn't have a roommate at this time. I'd had one the prior semester and it went tragically wrong. But um, <laughs> so I was I was in a single dorm room and I'd gone to the dining hall or mess hall, as I like to call it, the mess hall. Yeah. Um, and I'd gotten a meal and I had a Mountain Dew, which is why I don't drink Mountain Dew to this day. Uh-huh. But and someone someone drugged my drink. <clears throat> And I mean, I didn't find that out till after, of right, course, of course, but um, followed me back to my dorm room and I didn't lock my dorm room door that night, which these are the things that in hindsight go through your mind is like, oh my gosh, was it my fault? Should I have locked the door? It's still not my mm-hmm. fault. Mm-hmm. But it, it goes through your mind of like these things that could have changed mm-hmm. possibly the circumstance. But um, this person still don't know who they are to this day came into the dorm room and I was sexually assaulted and pretty brutally attacked and beat up. And I, I was left with um, broken bones and stab marks, stab cuts. Um, I was I was raped. I, you know, was basically left there to just die, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had hickeys. That's one of the worst parts oh, was yeah. like that violation of, yeah. of like intimacy. Something that you see every day looking in the mirror. Something that right? you see like when you look in the mirror. internal stuff is... That's a lot of information, but yeah. but when you look in the mirror, right, right, it's just not good. Where, did you did you were you sleeping? Did you wake up? No. So because of being drugged, I have bits and pieces of memory. Okay. Yeah. Um, I only probably remember a total of like two and a half minutes. I had a very like disassociating uh, experience. I felt like I was like floating in the room watching everything Ugh. happen. As opposed to being in my body, which in some ways I'm thankful for because I don't, yeah, I don't remember everything and I don't have any of the physical feelings of anything Mm. because I don't actually remember being in my physical body at that time. Um, But I only have like bits and pieces of, of memory from what happened Um, and not sure how long it was or anything like that. I can remember like more like feelings of the windows were open and it was February in Wisconsin. It was cold. So it was freezing cold. I remember like smells and things like that. Um, but don't remember a ton of other stuff. So you kind of come to the next day or later that night? Yeah. Early that morning. I want to say it was probably around like six or 7am kind of came to stood up, kind of remembered some of what it was like, very fuzzy, very, very hazy. Yeah. Part of that's got to be the drugs, drugs that were in my off. system yeah, yeah. Um, and making me regain some like mobility because I had been very much mm. paralyzed by the drugs, which is pretty common for like rehypnol right. and stuff right. like that. Um, came to, looked in my dorm room mirror, saw what I looked like and just had, it was really the hickeys that like did me in, which... It's not funny, but in hindsight, you'd think that like having bloody gash wounds would do something to you, but it was really the hickeys that did me in. Yeah. And just had an overwhelming feeling. And I think this is something a lot of people might relate to is not necessarily like the intent in the the plan to be like, I want to die. It was, I don't want to be here anymore because Mm -hmm. I don't know how to exist like this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to get help. I had gone through my whole life not reaching out for help, not asking for help, not knowing how to express that I needed help. So I very much had this overwhelming feeling of like, 
holy shit, what do I do? Mm. And so the only thing that I thought I could do was just not exist. Mm. So it wasn't so much about like wanting to kill myself or right. die, although technical terms that is, it is classified as that. But like, right. it was more of like, unsure how to move past this or yeah. get help or like, what do I do? Right. For some reason, my mind wasn't like, call 911. Right, it was like, right, right, right. I don't know how to exist. Well, because um, it, it, I would also imagine not having the people that bring you into this world, the people that are supposed to love you the absolute most, you've never had the ability to go to them really for anything substantial and emotional, whatever. No. So it's got to be that subconscious telling you like, hey, you're going to have to figure this out on your own and just and just be quiet about it because it's easier that way. Absolutely. And I think there was a lot of like a lot of shame around the sexual part of yeah. this too. There was a lot in my household growing up of like abstinence was the only way. Sure. There wasn't a lot of discussion about like safe sex practices mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. like that. And there was a lot of shame for me around that component mm-hmm. of it. And like, I couldn't tell my parents that. Right. I yeah, couldn't I like, they yeah. would have blamed me, which right. turns out, you know. <laughs> fast forward. Fast forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did you decided to go to the, the authorities at some point, right? So I actually, I, I overdosed. I took prescription. Oh, that, that, that was that morning. That morning. I, cause that was the only way I thought I had out of it. I see. Okay. Overdosed took the pills with the remaining Mountain Dew that was in oh. my dorm room, which the Mountain Dew is what was and uh, roofing. Is it fair to say, oh, so you took, you drank more of that? Yes. That's great. So then I, re, <laughs> like, I re-roofied myself. Got it. So, because obviously you didn't realize it was that drink. No, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, you're not in the right state of mind. Um, I think it's, is it safe to say you made it clear that you were not in a good place leading up to this semester anyways. Yes. Right? Absolutely. So maybe somebody that had the support of their family growing up or whatever, and that was in a good place going back to school and this happened to them, they might not choose that option. They might have called the authorities or whatever. Absolutely. But for you, it was like that desperation moment. You're like, and I think a lot of people, at least speaking for myself, I don't know a lot of people, I don't talk to a lot of people that are have suicidal thoughts, but I never actually wanted to kill myself. I never wanted to go through mm-hmm. with that action. I just didn't want to be here, like you're saying. Yeah. So two Makes part answer. Yeah. Two part answer. One, yes, I think that now in hindsight and reflection and being educated in the way that I am around mental health and suicide, this was very much a trigger moment for yeah. me. I was already in a bad place. I already didn't have people to reach out to. Right. I was already struggling to like keep my life together as far as like my grades and my family and everything. And this just was such a trigger moment where it was like, I have no one what's left. No one's going to like the perfect. Yeah. It was like the perfect, right. Perfect storm. Absolutely. And then on the flip side for what your question was about suicide, there's a whole spectrum of suicidal behaviors. So suicidal ideation in and of itself doesn't mean that you have to have intent. There's like passive ideation Mm -hmm. where it's like, what would happen if I drove my car off the side Mm -hmm. here? super common, almost all adults and humans have a thought like that at some point, yeah. of like just what would happen um, or like not wanting to exist anymore, not right. wanting to be here. Right. Doesn't mean there's any actual intent behind it. Doesn't mean there's any plan. And so ideation kind of goes from like low level to more chronic where you right. have it a lot, but you're still not intending to like intent and planning. Right. So there's kind right. of a spectrum of okay. it. Um, but it's, it's, and to your listeners and everyone, it is extremely common to have suicidal ideation passively, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're actually going to do it. And, right. and hopefully we're starting to see more clinicians address that if you disclose that, they don't automatically put you on any sort of watch or lockdown that they're saying like that's normal. Right. 
So I think it's kind of the old school way of thinking where, you know, back in the day, um, it's like a knee jerk reaction. Yeah. If you had any thought like that and you voiced your opinion, I mean, I'm thinking like 50s, 60s, 70s, like you're putting in a mental institute, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a fear of talking about some of this stuff because it's like, you're crazy or you, you need to be in a uh, straight jacket or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like these thoughts exist way more than we could even imagine. And I would imagine they exist in children too. Yeah. Children, young adults. I mean, across the board, we know in the suicide literature that there's just suicide is something that doesn't escape any demographic culture, um, you know, socioeconomic status. It doesn't discriminate. Suicide exists everywhere. And we're never going to be able to eradicate it. And that's not the goal of suicidology. It's to simply try and normalize and make it clearer and more able for people to reach out for support and for help. Wow. Okay. So you are, are by the grace of God, your friend, correct? Yes. So going back to the yep, friend that yep. I met backpacking, yep. Adam, um, who is a park ranger now. Um, so <laughs> love you, Adam. Love you, Adam. Um, Adam was supposed to meet me or I was supposed to meet him for lunch okay. and I didn't show up. And instead of just being like, oh, we're dumb young college kids right. and she didn't show up, he actually came to my dorm room and and found me and called 911. And yeah, and that's how I got to the hospital. And he stayed with me all the way through, like, I mean, I had to drink charcoal and like it was, Ugh. yeah, it was not a good time. Ugh. But he stayed with me through all that. Like, I, I cannot, we actually don't talk very much anymore, but I cannot be more indebted to him for mm. Saving my life. I hope you listen to this I do too. I do too. Uh, So you mentioned, you know, you were, you, there was a lot of blame placed on you by authorities and that, that whole thing and, and trying to get through, um, I I can't even imagine like a having to go through it and then B having somebody basically blame you for what you went through. So at what point, and we, we can definitely dive into that if you think that would be helpful But I also feel like there might be more ways that we can help people getting moving through. Yeah, I think moving forward. Yeah, and I mean, I'm open book. If anyone has questions about that part, they can always reach out to me. And so the guy, the person, I I shouldn't say guy, the person was never found. Person was never found. They do have DNA. I have a tox report. Okay. Um, We have an iPod. An iPod. Oh, from the person. Mm -hmm, From the person. But because did you go back? Okay, so stupid question. Did you go back to school? I didn't go back to school. I medically withdrew from school at that point, and I went actually to an inpatient treatment for a while, okay. for like uh, two weeks. Okay. Um, because I was still like, I mean, just, and what? Yeah, I don't even like. Well, I went back to my parents' house, and then I told them I was still suicidal, and then they put me in inpatient. Got it. <laughs> that's what happened. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> and got then it. I came out and had to get a job. So <laughs> that's um, what you're. That's what you were told to do. I was told to yeah. A week after I got out of the inpatient, I had to get a job. <sighs> Uh, I was kicked off of insurance. So I couldn't go seek therapy and treatment. So it was oh a whole shit storm. Gosh. But and you're what, 20 years old at this point? I was 18 turning 19. Okay. Not even 20. Not even 20. Wow. Yeah. So college is put on hold. College is put on hold. I went back to college um, when I was 21. Okay. So 21 or 22. 22, I think. I went back to college. So how did you, regardless of, of your parents, regardless of the authorities, regard, how did you as FP keep moving forward and not be like, okay, those pills didn't work. I'm going to take the, these pills or I'm going to grab a knife or a gut, mm-hmm. whatever. Like, how did you get to a place where it's like, and I, 
I say this because I realized I didn't want to kill myself, but I also just didn't even care. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just keep going because you, it's like, what else am I going to do? I actually don't want to kill myself, but I don't really want to be here either. So you just kind of go through the motions of life. Yeah. So how did you kind of keep going and at least put one foot in front of the other? Yeah. So I think after this all happened, there was a solid, I don't know, this is 14 years ago. There was a solid, probably 10 years of being yeah. extremely numb and it was an indifference to everything that was happening, mm-hmm. but it was an almost in spite of, I wanted to help others. And mm-hmm. so that's what replaced any sort of personal motivation in my life, any sort of family motivation, any sort of, you know, like all of that was replaced by just the drive to want to help others and to say, I want to use this story and take some of that power back mm. and not let this person who I don't know who it is win yeah. and control the rest of my life. Right. And although I didn't really take back the power for myself until recently about right. not letting this right. person control me, I really use that as motivation to help others and say like, if I can't help myself, I can at least do something sure. to work on other people. Sure, 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 sure. Which in turn does help you to some extent. Yeah. Not directly, but very much indirectly. So at, at you call yourself a suicide, I can never say this word, suicidologist. Yep. So you kind of became enamored with this, this suicide ideology. Yes. And did you start studying that? Or, you know, why did you go back to criminology and not... How did that, how do you, how do you blend those two worlds? How did that work? So originally I was thinking I wanted to go into the criminal justice system and be more of a victimologist, like a victim advocate. Because of what you went through. Because of what I went through with the authorities and because of being a victim myself. Although now I like to use the word survivor because it feels more empowering. Totally. Um, but that was too close to home for me. Mm-hmm. It was too hard. It was too, I was too emotionally invested and was placing my feelings about events on other people. Yeah. Um, and so it was too difficult. So I couldn't do the victimology stuff. I knew I didn't have the capacity to be a clinician and be like a therapist. Mm-hmm. I, God bless my therapist, Allie. I love you so much, <laughs> but I don't know how you do it. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I could yeah. never. Um, and so I was trying to kind of navigate this kind of world. And I really like the idea of working with vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. And so the CJ system and working with, you know, people incarcerated, and I also work with police officers as well. um, That kind of came about because I was like, okay, I can't do the victim thing, but I'm already getting my degrees in criminal justice. So like I need to stay in this world and not restart again. Right. Um, And then when I did my PhD, I actually started looking at things like hopelessness Mm -hmm. and more emotionality-based kind of concepts. And that led me to be like, okay, girl, like all of your experience with suicide, all of your research on suicide, all you know about this world and already being invested in this kind of community. Yeah. um, There's a huge network of suicidology uh, globally, actually. But I was already in that world and I was like, all right, stop being scared of the fact that you have lived experience and that you think that's clouding. Like, see if maybe you can push this forward. Sure. And so that's when I started to really embrace my story and talk about it and be open about it and be like, I do have lived experience. And because of that, I can couple that with research and with science and with facts and try and like merge those two things together in order to find better solutions. Sure. Um, So that's really where it came about was kind of like, Emotion-based, my dissertation is all on suicide um, correlates for people incarcerated in jail, so looking at different predictors. So it kind of sounds like, you know, um, 
your parents, like, yes, they, they pushed you into this college and your dad's a professor, but it's almost like it's kind of where you were meant to be. Unfortunately, you had to go through some personal stuff to get there, but it very much, you know, to, to give them a, a sliver of credit, um, it set you up for exactly where you have, you, where you should be in the world to help the most amount of people. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I give my parents more than just a sliver. Like, they, <laughs> they, I mean, for all the negative things, right. they're, they're good people. My parents are good people. Right. They're just not the best parents. The parents. Right, yeah, right, of course. Um, but no, I think it's funny because I would have never in a million years thought Been like, I'm that be I, a oh my gosh, never. I would have thought, I mean, I'm so like, nomadic and yeah. hippy dippy yeah, and like yeah. I'm like I thought I'd be working at like a, sh- a surf shack or something <laughs> like I don't know I never thought I would get a PhD and be a professor <laughs> but it is it is funny I think it's partially in my genes and DNA yeah. or something to to be a teacher an and an educator yeah. Yeah. and yeah. to want to do that that's crazy yeah so now where are you working yeah so I work at Cal State LA okay. um in the criminal justice and criminal criminalistics department or school or school technically Um, so I'm an assistant professor there. I'm going into my third year on the tenure track. And then I do a ton of outside contract grant work, um, with different agencies like the Illinois department of corrections, the military, um, to work on suicide prevention and analysis and risk assessments and things like that. Yeah. So what's the biggest, as far as, you know, the military or people coming back from serving or, uh, police officers, what's the biggest? the biggest area you're finding right now that are dealing with this, these suicide tendencies or, you know, thoughts, ideas, all like what, where's, where, where do our problems lie right now? I think the problems can kind of all be boiled down for both populations really to stigma. Okay. And I think it's reducing that stigma, reducing that code of silence where Mm -hmm. they like feel like we can't say that we have issues or that we're struggling. Like I have to be tough all the time. I have to be, you know, this, hard. Yeah. Yeah, Tough cop. Like nothing gets to me. Nothing makes me emotional. Mm -hmm. Breaking down that stigma seems to be kind of the common thread that I'm seeing throughout. And if we can do that and get people to say and accept help, Mm -hmm. I think we're going to reduce a lot of of suicidal behaviors because I think a lot of it is still tied in this old school way of thinking that in order to be tough, you can't have any weaknesses. Right. Right. So what's your role in that? I know Mm -hmm. you write a lot of papers. I know you are published and in all of these, you know, these studies that you do, they are, they're published. So how are you helping this world? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I do do a lot of research where I collect data, analyze it, write up empirical reviews and reports and things like that. And those are the publications. Okay. But I also do a lot of policy work. um, And that's, I think, where more of my real impact is, is instead of just, you know, writing up these studies is great, but so many people don't read them. They're behind paywalls a lot of time. Although if anyone ever wants them, let me know. I'll (laughs) give them to you for free. Um, But I think a lot of the impact comes from the direct policy that I work on with different agencies in changing access and changing education. Mm. And so one of my big proponents or proponents, that's not the right word. One of my big pushes right now is um, I've developed this process. It's called the suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention process. And it's a way to educate, train for prevention while also still having intervention and postvention for people that have exhibited suicidal behaviors. Hmm. Um, But I really think the big focus is on the education and the, and the, um, 
training of individuals so that it's more of a community insulation okay. as opposed to an individual insulation. And I think yeah. I ironically hadn't thought yeah. about this until talking to you just now. This probably goes back to a lot of how I felt is yep. that I felt very much like the isolated individual. And yep. even though I knew about suicide, I had no community support. And so a lot of my approaches now are building community and building training and prevention and education within a community and not just within an individual. Because when you are dealing with something as an individual, you feel even worse about whatever you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. It's like, I hate the term misery loves company, but trauma loves, trauma is, is almost dealt with easier when you have other trauma people to go through it with. Yes. Right. So same idea Trauma becomes very codependent. That's right. That's right. I was thinking about that when you were talking, I'm like, oh, she's creating community around something that's extremely isolating. And that's very hard to talk about. And listen- Here's the thing, unless you've had these thoughts, unless you've been in certain situations, it's very difficult to understand how somebody could simply not want to live. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to understand. And you don't have to understand that. But placing people around other people that do get it is so beneficial for everybody involved. I I can't even explain why. Um, I think just because of that community you yeah, know, and it makes you feel less like alone that it's not, you're not crazy for having you don't these feel thoughts crazy. and yeah. like you have other people that get it. And I think another big part of that is that if you're someone who luckily has never dealt with suicidal thoughts mm-hmm. of any kind, it's very common to think that suicidal thoughts are extremely selfish, mm-hmm. but they're not. And the reason they're not selfish is that in the moment that a person is thinking that way, They're not thinking about it for themselves. They're actually thinking about it to relieve everybody else. So it's actually a very selfless thought process, which of course the act becomes possibly, I don't want to say selfish because that's really stigmatizing, but like I can see how it could be interpreted that way. But when someone's in that deep of a Mm self-loathing state of mind, they're thinking of actually relieving others from the burden that is themselves. Correct. And so- It's a really hard concept to understand if you've never felt that way to be like, what do you mean? How can you think that way? But when you get around other people that have been there and have had that deep rooted self-hate that would make you want to not exist, all of a sudden it clicks and it's like, okay. Got it. Got it. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. It totally makes sense. And it's, it's, again, it's hard to explain. And somebody that like, you know, there, there are people that will argue this all day. And like, you know, I was born and raised Catholic and it's, I know that the Catholic uh, community doesn't see it as um, a sin anymore. I think Mm -hmm. they've abolished that. But like growing up, um, you know, 14, 15, 16, being forced to go to church every week and having these thoughts myself, I'm like, I don't want to be here. Like these people don't get me. They don't, you know, whatever. It also becomes hard to share then because you're being told that's even more of a shameful thought to have. Right. It's like just if you were, you know, homosexual or whatever it is that whoever you are, it's like. If you're born in that world, you live in that world, it, it it's not safe anymore. Right. And I had this conversation with my mom recently, and she's like, hey, just so you know, like, um, they the Catholic Church no longer sees it as a sin. They've they've abolished that and whatever. I'm like, well, good for them. There's still a lot of issues with them. But I have a really, really hard time with the term committing suicide because you commit adultery, mm-hmm. you commit a crime, you commit a murder, like committing suicide is that's shouldn't even be 
a term. Yeah. So in the suicidology world, we're trying to move away from that, actually. So okay. I love that you brought that up because it pisses me off. Yeah, so it's much. very stigmatizing yeah. language and it criminalizes the behavior, yes. even though suicide technically is a crime, believe it or not, which is we're, we're what are you going to do somebody after they're dead? You know I what know. I mean? Like, yeah. come on. But you can technically be charged with a really? homicide of self. Yes. Which wow. is ridiculous. Um, we're working on that, but, <laughs> but we try really hard not to say committed suicide. Yeah. We try to say died by suicide yeah. or even killed took yourself, your own life. Took, took your own, own life, life is yeah. better. Yeah. Yeah. And it just removes a little bit of that. I try really hard to say died by suicide. Um, yeah. Yeah. because you know, we want to give the empathy that someone has died. Right. And has passed right. Away. Right. Right. Um, right. But I totally agree with you. And I love that you brought that up because it's a big push that we've been seeing only in the last like maybe two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I know people use that term because they don't know what else it's to easy. say. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I can't get mad about it because it's like, again, that's a person that's never dealt with it or has never had a close person deal with it. So yeah. whatever, they don't get it. They don't understand it, but okay. So let's jump into, we've got about, um, 10, 15 more minutes. Sure. I want to jump into the past two years when yeah. we, I always do like a quick, like people come over and I'm like, Let's do a quick like five, 10 minute pre-interview just so I, I have an idea of like where I want to go with the conversation. Um, and you were very open. You're like, I don't think I've dealt with emotions ever until two years ago. So you're yeah. 33. Almost right? 33. Almost 33. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 31 years of not dealing with any emotions. Yes. Having some very traumatic things, you know, um, forced upon you, but never really like taking responsibility, like mm-hmm. we talked about, you dealt with them in a different way by helping others and pouring yourself. I mean, the amount of research that you do, yeah, you must always crazy. be online in a book, <laughs> writing, reading, right? So yeah. it's almost, that's your escapism. Yes. It's very much a coping for me. So your brain, your brain is constantly consumed by information mm-hmm. and helping other people. And at what point over the past few years, did you look in the mirror and be like, okay, FP, uh, you need to pour some of this energy into myself. Yeah. So 2020 was extremely hard. I was isolated for basically the whole year (laughs) and I had just moved to California and like was by myself and it was, it was just wild. So you had just gotten the job as the Mm -hmm. assistant professor, correct? Yeah. As a professor. Okay. And assistant, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just a rank. It's not. Oh, okay. I'm not. I don't assist a professor. I just, oh, you are. I am a professor. You're running the whole. Yeah, you're running, running the, the running the show. It's just a rank of of professor. Got it. Um, Got it. But it's very confusing <laughs> academia. Um, but I was isolated for a whole year, and I realized that I was slipping fast in my mental health, mm. and I was also working probably in California, in California, where shit is still going on. Yeah. In California, working completely remote from my house where I knew my mate, I knew four of my neighbors, Mm. five of my neighbors, um, and no one else. So you moved there with the intention of being in person. Yes. Correct. Yes. And then the world shut down. And then the world shut down. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I moved there in June of 2020. Got it. And I, Instead of because my coping skill is to overwork, <laughs> I was working like 80 hours a week on basically all suicide related stuff, wow. which is just it's heavy. It's right. a lot to deal with. Right. And I realized I was slipping. Mm. And so I finally was like, I guess I should maybe like get myself in therapy, which is what I tell clients right. all the time that they should do. <laughs> but, you know, taking our own advice yeah. is really hard. Yeah. So I got myself back into therapy actually just about a little over a year ago. Um, Good for you. So it took me quite a while to actually yeah. work up 
to work up the courage to find a place to call to make an appointment yeah. took me a probably solid six months, I would say. Well, and it's, I think you will, you will understand this. It's exhausting. Yes. Getting back to therapy or starting therapy because you have to you find have to somebody. Yeah, you have to go through the whole thing. Yeah, whole thing and like, uh, obviously insurance doesn't cover most of it, right? Mm-hmm. You're paying out of pocket. You have to find somebody that you click with. You have to tell your story. If that doesn't work out, then you got to find somebody new. You know what I mean? It's, it's a whole it is. process. It's a huge process. I will say again, I'm not trying to self plug so much, but if anyone needs resources for free or sliding scale in their area, I have an entire network of geographically located Ooh. in the U S places that people can reach out to. Um, so if they need to be hooked up and I can give that to you yeah. and then you can have access on like your, um, site and page yeah, and stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can also put, um, your email in the show notes. Yeah. That's if you're totally open to fine. That. Yeah. Okay. So, so about a year ago, you're like, let's do this. So I was like, let's do this. Let's go to therapy. And had then, you ever been to therapy before? I had. I've Besi- been that little, on and off. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Here's another fun little <laughs> quick story. I went to therapy when I was in high school because I was um, self-injuring. I was cutting myself. Got Very it. surface level. Nothing too serious. But I went to therapy and the therapist was convinced that I was gay and was trying to tell me that it was okay to come out, that it was okay to come out. I'm I'm straight. I'm not gay. And um, she was very convinced. And there was no – we never got into any other issues because she, like, just self-labeled me right away. Which, like, you're, like, the one person in the world that you're, like, if I was gay, everyone would know it I was and like, I would I wanted, own it. Yeah. And, and, like, I don't come from a family that it would have been a yeah, huge deal. And, and, and yeah. turns out my sister's gay. So, like – There you go. It was just, fu- just a funny little <laughs> aside that I had to – like come out that I'm straight. Um, but (laughs) so I I was in therapy in high school, went to therapy a little bit after what happened after I was attacked, but I didn't have insurance. Mm. I was uninsured with health insurance for like three years Mm. and I couldn't afford it. I was working retail. Like I had, I had no money. Um, and so then I was out of therapy, went to therapy twice when I was in my PhD program, did not connect with the therapist at all. And so stopped going. Yeah. So this time I was like committed to finding someone to, if it didn't work out with one, to like sticking it out to yeah. find someone. Luckily, the first therapist I met up oh, with is Allie and I love her and she's the best. Love Allie. Love Allie. I feel so bad that I overburden her, but it's fine. <laughs> it's her job. It's her job. Um, but so went back to therapy and doing all of that, started unpacking. I thought I was just going to go back to deal with my trauma from the sure, attack. Sure. Turns out we have only touched on that a few times. <laughs> um Going back and unpacking all of this emotional stuff and how I haven't expressed my emotions. I haven't allowed myself to feel them. I don't allow myself to get like super, super happy. Mm. I stay in a very baseline Mm. and a safe place, a safe place for self-protection. Because if I, if anything's ever been too good and I've been too happy in my life, things go wrong. Yeah. And if things are too frustrating or too angry, things go wrong. So like it's much safer for me to stay very level. Yeah. And now I'm realizing and learning and 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 learning tools and coping and how to have emotions and how to feel things. And yeah. it's quite a mind fuck at 30, <laughs> almost 33 years old where I'm yeah. like, yeah. I felt angry for the first time like two weeks ago. Wow. I don't think I've ever in my entire life felt angry before. I've been like frustrated right. or irritated, right. but not like angry. Yeah. And it like scared me. Scared you. It scared me. Yeah. 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 It's, it's scary to have emotions and to feel, to feel things, Yeah, Yeah. to not be so numb anymore. It's, it's a lot. It's overwhelming, but it's also making me see kind of like what you and I were talking about, like on this other side where you take that power back and Mm -hmm. you get to start having the responsibility for your life, 
things may feel deeper, but it's also going to be way sweeter. Totally. Well, and then you're able to feel the emotion and at some point you're able to handle it. And I always say like, be pissed off, be angry, um, be happy, be sad, like be those things. But if it's going to determine how your life goes into the next week, into the next month, into next year, then that's a problem. Yes. Right? Like we don't want that to continue. We want people to be happy for the most part. Like obviously I have bad days and whatever, but I always say I no longer have bad years. They become smaller. Amazing. Yeah. Right? They're, you know, they went to bad months, bad weeks, and now it's like a bad day or two. And then I'm like over it. But I've had to very much learn like, A, how to be aware. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm, I'm slipping. I'm going through something. Okay, what do I need to do for myself? And then B, actually doing those things. Right. Right? So what are some things, and I like to, towards the end of every episode, is to get really tangible mm-hmm. with people because I, I view mental health, mental wellness, the same way I view uh, physical fitness. And that if I put someone on this type of program, this person over here might not have the same results. So everything that you do for your body is different than the other person. Mm -hmm. Same thing for your mind. Everybody's brain is different. We all work in very different ways. And I want people to pull from each episode different things that they can try and be like, oh, so-and-so they do this, they meditate, they take an ice bath, whatever that works for them. Let me try it. And eventually, hopefully people that can't afford therapy or aren't ready to, you know, dive into therapy can try some things that we talk about and maybe it will help them. So what are some things that you do day to day, week to week to kind of keep you in a Besides therapy, obviously, but to keep you in a good place. Yeah. So obviously therapy, big advocate, but I totally agree with you. It's not accessible to everyone. It's not available to everyone. I, so I'm starting to learn and realize that doing physical activity is a huge mental health thing for me. And I know I briefly mentioned it after I was attacked, I gained a hundred pounds in about six and a half weeks. Yeah. Weeks. Wow. Crazy. Because you just don't, you, you're just, I, just you trauma, just didn't yeah. care, yeah. was like coping with food. Yeah. Like it was, it was awful. Totally. And I'm still 14 years later struggling with that weight loss. Sure. And, but now that I've regained the responsibility, mm-hmm. see, y'all, you know, mm-hmm. I'm telling you this podcast changed my life. <laughs> now that I've regained the responsibility though, not only am I finding that I have power and I have a drive and motivation to change my physical being, sure. but it also by doing physical stuff, is mentally so helpful to totally. me. Getting out and being like, I was able to run four miles yeah. is way more mental to me than physical. Is like that I'm capable and that I can do that and yeah. that I am strong and yeah. that I, you know, I have this body that lets me do that. Right. And, um, so that's been a huge game changer Love for that. me is that it's, you know, and that's something that pretty, you can pretty much do with no movement. No money. Yeah. Move you your can body. Go for a walk. Yeah. Go for a run. You yeah. know, you don't have to have the best running shoes to do that. You can just get out there and do something. Yeah. Like there are zero excuses to move your body. Yeah. Zero. So that's it, been it huge. can take a it can take um like a gotta pep yourself up to get out of bed some days and go do it. But that's the biggest thing for me is when I'm in a funk, I'll lay in bed and when I will set a timer, like you can be sad. You can cry. You can sit with your dog for this up. amount of time. And when your alarm goes off, you're going outside. I love And that. usually it just like flips my switch. It like um, jolts your brain. And all of a sudden it can't think about that anymore. It starts thinking about, you know, the sounds that I'm hearing mm-hmm. or the birds that I'm seeing or the shit I'm smelling or whatever outside, yeah. you know? 
Okay, no, I so love that. movement outdoors. Movement outdoors. I I love like trail running. Yeah. Um. I also love just. I I'm a swimmer, former swimmer. Yeah. But I love just going and floating, mm-hmm. like not even swimming, not even like exercising, but just floating and letting things melt off of you love is that. a really great thing yeah, for me. Yeah, the water is super healing. Super nice. Everyone's like, you're always at a lake. I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's great though. And and again, a really inexpensive way yeah, to kind of get that. Totally. Um, I do a lot of reading, a lot of kind of escapism yeah. into, into reading. Do you do um, like pleasure reading or, I mean, I know you do a ton of research, but do you I do, do a like ton of research. Stuff? Um, I do, I, I'd say- Self-help. 50-50. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to do more like self-help motivation type yeah. stuff. I always, I didn't believe in it as much before. And now I'm starting to see the value mm-hmm. in it that it's not about having to buy into everything. It's about finding and th- the things that 100%. connect with you. Yep. Um, what a yep. moment. <laughs> um, so doing a lot of that and then trying to eat healthy always makes yeah. me feel better. Yeah. Like the, the better I eat, the more like whole foods, plants that I eat, the better I feel. And I know that's so like cliche and cheesy, but it really does feel different. Well, the studies that they do on your gut and like what's going on in your microbiome and, and how, I mean, they literally say, I remember I interviewed, um, a functional medicine doctor and she's like, you don't like people don't understand your gut is your second brain. Yes. And if you are feeding it with sugars and processed foods and you know, fats, like it affects the way that your brain actually like fires. Right. It's so true. And I think about that to when, you know, I was at my deepest, darkest place. I was just eating shit food, not thinking about that. It was a, it was a coping mechanism. Right. right. And then also having eating disorders, I was eating all this horrible food and I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense why yeah. I was even worse. Yeah. You're just feeding those. Yes, like, yeah. Bacteria, it's bad crazy. bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last thing I guess that I'll mention that I've only recently started doing and is really hard for me, so I'm not suggesting that this is easy, uh-huh. but is coming from someone that's always only relied on myself because that's the only safe place I've had. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to let people in and I'm starting to have support systems yeah. and I'm starting to realize when people reach out and say, hey, how are you? I'm checking in on you like you did to me last yeah. week, that it's from a real genuine place and yeah. that it's okay to say like, I'm not doing great right now, but thanks for checking in. But like, I'm okay. I just, I appreciate it or whatever. But yeah. that little bit of having a support system outside of my therapist, yeah. um, she would love that for me, <laughs> um, is, is something that's really hard, but I think it's something that's really valuable. And as much as I preach about community, it's very hard for me to let myself have community. Yeah. Um, but starting to do that and starting to find, yeah. as an adult, those people you can rely on. Yeah. And that you connect with. And that's really powerful. I think that's going to change kind of the game for me. Sure. As much as you can create it, you have to let yourself be a part of it. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I'm I'm just like blown away that we came into each other's lives. Me too. Forever grateful. I'm extremely proud of you. Thank you. I can't wait to see what happens over the next, you know, few months. We're going big places. For you, you know, I'm very excited. Um, Anything else you want to leave our guests with or mention that we didn't cover? Oh, I think we covered everything pretty well. Just uh, always want to just note, like, I'm available if anyone needs yeah. to reach out. I'm not a clinician, but I can connect you with people. Yeah. And... You really are like an ultimate connector. Yeah. So um, I think that it's really hard to read someone's mind to know that, that someone's in a bad place. Um, so at the end of the day, if all you can do is reach out to 
I think it's almost harder to reach out to somebody you know. Yes. So being able to reach out to a stranger that just completely shared their life story, uh, do not be afraid to reach out to her. And um, it's all confidential. Absolutely. And she will put you in good hands. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to decide that you want to do it. Yes. So thank yep. you for coming on. Thank you so much for I, having She's in town me. from Alabama and I'm leaving to go home tomorrow morning. And I'm like, Hey, we were going to like go out and get dinner. I'm like, Hey, instead of dinner, cause I have to pack tonight, but would you want to come over and like record a, an episode <laughs> and like tell your story? So here we are. So, um, Francis Page, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm grateful for you and I'm excited to see where our journeys go. I am too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. The biggest compliment I ever receive is when you like the episode, you share it with your friends and your family or a stranger that is in need of hearing this information and from these beautiful guests. And then also to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I would also love to hear from you. So if you would like, you can DM me at six feet above podcast on Instagram or send me an email six feet above podcast at gmail.com. So that's six, the number six feet above podcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your questions, your comments, your feedback, your suggestions, and also any guests that you would love to hear from in the future. Thanks for listening.